This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with my comrade in arms, Malik Alim. That was Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. Tom's a revolutionary troubadour who stands arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, whenever folks come together in our ongoing march toward justice and peace for freedom. We're gathered here for our seminar on freedom. We breathe deeply and imagine ourselves to be a small but energetic insurgent community, a fugitive space, or perhaps an underground university without walls. We work to unlock our collective wisdom and pose fundamental questions. Where are we on the clock of the universe? How do we see and name this political moment? What does the known demand of us now? We are bound together by our collective commitment to look at the world as if it could be otherwise, and then to get busy in a project of repair. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. It's a time of reflection, a moment of Zen. Today's poem is from a collection of poems called 1919 by Eve Ewing. That book is, as Eve says, an entry point into a conversation about a particularly cruel and compelling moment in our collective history, the Red Summer of 1919, and specifically the so-called race riots in Chicago that July. And each poem opens with an epigraph, a short passage from an official report written at the time. The poem is Sightseers, and it has two epigraphs. First, from the report itself. Often the sightseers, and even those included in the nucleus, did not know why they had taken part in crimes, the viciousness of which was not apparent to them until afterward. Second epigraph is from Hannah Arendt. The sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil. Sightseers by Eve Ewing is read by our regular contributor, 13-year-old Light Eilee. Just this once, I hope you'll forgive me for writing a somewhat didactic poem. I just didn't know how else to say that we live in a time of sightseers, standing on the bridge of history, watching the water go by, and there are bodies in the water. And the water has been dirty for so long, and the sightseers still drink from it. They buy special filters and they smile. They have nice glasses and teacups. They put sugar in the dirty water that has our bodies in it. And there are sightseers seated beneath the Tower of Empire, peering up at the lights. And there are children in the tower. And the tower has been crooked for so long. And the sightseers still look at it. They find the lights enchanting. They meet up on the weekends. They have picnics in the plaza of the tower that has our children in it. And there are sightseers looking at the house of power, waiting to take a tour. And there are devils in the house. And the house has been wicked for so long. And the sightseers still worship it. They stand in front and take pictures. They marvel at the white pillars. They send postcards of the house that has the devils in it. And just this once, I hope you'll forgive me for asking you directly to forget the lovely water, to forget the charming pillars, because there are children in the tower. There are children in the tower. 
there are children in the tower and they are dead already. That was Sightseers by Eve Ewing, whom I love. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, a moment to enable new awarenesses to spark up in our minds, unexpected, unannounced. Today's free write starts with a simple answer, yes or no, to a prompt, and then a request to explain your choice. Here we go. Every human being deserves everything they need to live a decent and dignified life. Yes or no, explain. Start writing and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. That's pronounced ah, where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about freedom and justice and what's to be done. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our radical imaginations, and ask not just what's going on, but what can we do about it. I'm so happy to be joined by an old friend. Dr. Eve Ewing is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration, a remarkably productive scholar and an extraordinarily creative artist with propulsive reach and an impact that's dazzling. Poet, playwright, artist, academic researcher, prolific blogger, institution builder, essayist, teacher, dive into her work anywhere and can easily take you everywhere. Actually, unlike most of my old friends, Here's an old friend who's actually quite young herself. Eve, thanks for have, taking time to drop by. Oh my gosh, Bill, what an amazing intro. Thank you. It's so It brings me such joy to see you and hear you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to see you. Um, I want to, you know, I want to take our time judiciously and cover what we can. Sure. I thought we would start where you and I started, which is you taught in the Chicago Public Schools. I've been a lifelong teacher. You're still a teacher. Um and teaching is part of, I think, what your heart. So I wanted to start there, and I wanted to talk about your book a little bit, Ghosts in the Schoolyard, which I think is an extraordinary accomplishment. The subtitle Thank is you. Racism in School Closings on Chicago's South Side. And I thought I'd read one paragraph and ask you to comment a little bit. You, sure. The book goes into you know a phenomenon that people in urban schools are familiar with, anyone in the urban scene is familiar with. But it takes place in Bronzeville, where you used to teach. And uh, you, you get deep into the, the everyday nitty-gritty of life in Bronzeville, what schools mean, and what the closing of a school means. But in the conclusion, you have a paragraph that says this. In a sense, for Bronzeville and communities like it across the city and across America, this is what the fight against school closures is really about. It's about understanding oneself as a character in a seemingly interminable tragedy, one who staggers across the stage over and over again, act after act, and deciding to try to interrupt the supposed death sentence you've been handed. It's a fight to say, not one more, not here, not today. It's a fight to say, you did this to my granddaddy, and now you're trying to do it to me. And I say, not again. This, we insist, is our home. 
Broken though it may be, it remains beautiful, and we remain children of this place. We insist on a right to claim it, to shape it, to keep it. We took the freedom train to get here. Might as well do the work to get free. I love that concluding Boy, paragraph. Boy, it sounds it sounds really good when you say it. I like can't believe I wrote that. It sounds real good. You you, you not only wrote it, you wrote many things like it. But I, I, I it's it's true. It rises to the level of poetry, but it expresses in a very um, condensed form. I think a really powerful idea about the meaning of freedom for you and for this community, and also um, kind of the never-ending struggle to get there. I thought you should tell us a little bit about the book, how you came to write it, and maybe comment on that on that uh, piece right there. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. Um, so I guess, so the book has many beginnings, as all things do. Um, most immediately, it began in 2013, when, um, as people, you know, who are probably avid listeners of you probably already know, but I'll recap it anyway, Chicago Public Schools had the largest mass public school closure in the history of the United States, about 50 schools were slated for closure. Um, originally, that number was much larger, and there was a lot of disorder and chaos, and even figuring out which schools would be on the closure list. Um, And one of the schools on that list was a school where I had been a middle school teacher. And at the time I was in graduate school and I remember the moment, I will never forget in my life, the moment of going through the newspaper and scanning the list and, and seeing the name of my school on the list and how stunned I was. And the thing that came, there were two things that came immediately with my shock. Um, The first thing that came was reading the ways that the school and schools like ours had been characterized in the press and the feeling of misrecognition or unrecognition, right? Hearing the way that people talk about you that is discordant with the way you see and understand yourself, which, you know, is obviously related to Du Bois, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, his notion of, of the veil or of double consciousness, the idea that you're seeing yourself simultaneously through the eyes of others and that you understand that there's a, that there's a disconnect there. That was the first thing was the sense of the language that was being used, um, specifically the idea that the schools were underutilized and under-resourced. That really kind of stuck with me and upset me. And the second moment that, the second thing that attended my moment of shock was a sense of confusion because um, I did not understand why this decision was being made. And the the official justifications that had been put forward did not uh, pass the smell test for me. They didn't make sense on, on their face. And so, you know, I, that was kind of the beginning of the story. And I set out to, um, to try to understand, uh, and to document what I saw as the, the real reason underlying these closures, um, which was that there was, there was no way I argue in the book that there's no way of understanding this policy decision without understanding basically the entire preceding history, a century of racism and segregation in the community. And as I've had the, um, blessed opportunity to travel around the country and in some cases to other parts of the world and talk about this book. The thing that I want people to understand is that um, I'm obsessed with Chicago. You're obsessed with Chicago. We love it here. This is our home. These are our people. But really what I'm trying to do is model a kind of interrogation that all of us should be asking about the places where we live and to understand what are the histories that have been concealed and who is served by by that that hiding, right? Who is served by people not knowing the underlying history around how we get to the present. So that's basically what the the book is about. Yeah, you say understand the places and interrogate the history, but it's also 
the people. You, you yes, really yes. Get, you dive into the stories of people um, who might be written off uh, by their statistical profiles in some sociologists' uh, hands, but not in your hands. Talk a bit Thank about you. That. Yeah, well, I think that comes from a few things. Um, number one, as you mentioned, I am a poet, and I think that the poet's job and the social scientist's job um, both should be to look closely. And um, one of the things that I uh, include at the beginning of the book is a quotation from you know one of uh, a favorite poet and an inspirational person that you and I both share and talk a lot about, and that person is Gwendolyn Brooks. Right. And Gwendolyn Brooks, her most famous poem is "We Real Cool." Um, Seven, uh, the 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 pool player, seven at the golden shovels. Technically, right. the title of the poem. Um, but you know, the poem is about kids who are skipping school and shooting pool in the middle of the day and being delinquent, delinquent basically, and doing bad things, right? And when she she gave this talk at the Guggenheim, where she explained how she came to write the poem, and she talked about seeing these young people, um, you know, skipping school. And she says, instead of asking myself, why aren't they in school? I asked myself, I wonder how they feel about themselves. Mm. And that is like everything to me, right. <laughs> you know, that's everything. What kind of research could we do? What kind of practitioners could we be? What kind of humans could we be if we ask that question of other people? And I think that for me, that is um, really, really imperative right now because you know, what I've been telling people is that I, I am trying, I'm real frustrated. I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overworked. I'm all these things that all of us are. I'm anxious. I'm depressed, all these things. So I get frustrated with people at different moments, but what I've been trying to do is interact with every person I speak to as though that person may have just lost a loved one or that someone close to them is sick because that may very well be the case. And if it's not the case, the thought experiment of trying to treat people with tenderness and care um, is very helpful to try to make me a better person. And so I think that, you know, writing the book in this way where I really did not want to just pathologize people who've been pathologized endlessly, um, I think that that comes from poetry. I also think it comes from my own history, you know, growing up as a black person in Chicago, um, especially as someone who kind of came of age in the 90s, being very acutely aware as a young person of the way people talked about me and the way people mm -hmm. saw me, the kinds of language they used to describe me or my family or my loved ones or my neighborhood that is is not affirming and not, um, you know, dignified. And so, you know, I just try to write in a way that, um, that I can share it and feel, feel proud of it and, and sharing it with the people that I'm writing about and have them feel like this is true, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have them feel seen, have them feel yeah. that their three dimensions are recognized somehow. Yeah. And that also comes from, you know, that's part of what I consider to be a black feminist practice to center. I, I write a lot about feelings. I think that it's okay to talk about feelings and scholarship, which is not a thing that a lot of people like to do. I like to talk about love. That's something I've definitely gotten from you and your mentorship, like even saying the word love in academic spaces, saying that I love people or that I love students or that I love myself, like modeling that. And, you know, another person that you and I share is the, the great 
scholar, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, um, who is, you know, um, a close friend of yours and who is a, a, a dear mentor of mine. And something she writes about, she writes about the search for goodness, the importance in any community of, of not, not pretending like everything's good or like things aren't bad, but attempting to search for goodness. And she also, her method that she invented is, is known as portraiture. It's like a sociological research method. And the thing about the, the metaphor of the portrait is that when you see a portrait of yourself, it's not a mirror. It's mm. not like you're, you're not looking at it and thinking, oh yeah, that's me. That's what mm. I expected to see. That's what I see every day. And I, there's a great portrait of you, uh, you know, that, the, that's been done as part of the Americans who tell the truth series. People should right. go look it up right. by, I believe Patrick Shetterly is the, the artist. Robert, if I Robert Shetterly, right. Robert Shetterly. And so, you know, I know you've had this experience of having, looking at a portrait of yourself. It's not that you say, oh yeah, that's just how I right. thought I looked. It's that you feel seen in a different way. It might be different than how you see yourself. It's a different version of a story, but it feels true. And it, in fact, it shows you something that perhaps you couldn't have seen on your own. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, feeling seen. You say, you kind of consider it the poet's obligation, the black feminist obligation. The other thing that we share that is also true, it's the teacher's obligation. Yes. I mean, you, yes. you, know, you, you know, you have 30 kids or 150 kids in front of you. You can't possibly see them all, but the exercise of trying to see them as three-dimensional creatures just like yourself not only humanizes them, it humanizes you. It makes yes. you a better feminist, a better poet, a better teacher. Yes, better activist, better everything. And I I really think that that is um, every day I am astounded and disappointed by the amount of policy and research and work that gets produced that just seems to forget that very basic fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I don't keep trying to attribute everything to you just to gas you up and make you feel good. But, <laughs> you know, I you are a very important mentor and influence in my life. And I like to try to give people their flowers. I'm also Thank just you. being honest that a lot of this is also... So, you know, you are a person who in your scholarship, um, you're always thinking about just the miracle of the child, right? And I think that comes from having been an early childhood educator where you're working with really little beans, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're just magical. And I think that that, I think the moment you forget that, you've lost everything. I think that's right. And I think what's amazing is you can look at an infant and see how quickly they're learning. I mentioned um, my co comrade here, Malik Aleem, he has a, a little one-year-old, two-year-old, and he tells me all the time the mind-blowing things the kid accomplishes. You have to hold on to that because it's That's true right. for a one-year-old, it's true for an infant, it's true for a two-year-old, but it's true for a 15-year-old and a 25-year-old too. Yes, and yeah. a 50 and a 75-year-old and, and exactly. everybody. That's right. Exactly. You know, I was rereading Ghosts in the Schoolyard, and I was rereading your brilliant book of poetry, 1919, and there's a link between those those two books. Um, And the link is something you discovered while you were doing research uh, for the Ghosts book. Um, Maybe you could talk a bit about that thing you uncovered, that document you uncovered. Sure. Which I think think speaks exactly to the point we're on, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was... um trying to write about Ghosts in the Schoolyard, I was trying to write this story about 2013. And I realized really quickly that to write about 2013, I had to go back to 1963. And then once I was in 1963, I realized really quickly that I had to go back to about 1917, 1919, 1920. And so suddenly in order, which I didn't plan, you know, so I realized, but that's, I think that's instructive. It taught me something through the process of writing. And so 
one of the texts that was really important that I cite a lot in the book um, is this this text from 1922, which is called The Negro in Chicago. It first came to my attention because it's cited in the very famous study, The Black Metropolis by Horace Caton and St. Clair Drake, which is kind of a seminal text about um, the black Chicago of the 1940s. Right. And they are citing this previous text from 20 years. You know, it's like a whole rabbit hole. But basically, The Negro in Chicago was written in 1922, and it's an article archival, it's a document, it's a state commissioned report that was written by a bilateral, uh, partially black, partially white commission of men. I always joke women had not been invented yet. So it was written by a group of black men and a group of white men. Um, and their task was to analyze the causes of the 1919 race riot that happened in Chicago during what James Weldon Johnson refers to as the Red Summer. And, you know, I often compare this to people might be more familiar with something like the 9-11 Commission, for example, mm. right? Like after you have a big disaster, uh, you assign people to analyze, figure out why it happened, and more importantly, what can we do to prevent it in the future? So in 1922, this group of scholars, researchers, public policy people, they're trying to figure out why did Chicago have this tremendous outbreak of, of racialized violence three years prior in 1919. And they realized that in order to understand that, <laughs> this is all a group of people realizing that it goes much deeper than you think, that in order to understand that and answer that question, they had to um, understand the very conditions of black life during the Great Migration. Mm. So the Negro in Chicago is the text that results. It's over 800 pages long. And it's a very intense study of um, the causes and consequences of the 1919 race riot, but also the broader social context of what it was like to be black in Chicago a century ago. And so I was reading this text for research and I was like, yo, this thing is really fascinating. It's deep. And what I found is that there are all these lines in it that to me were so evocative and sounded like poetry and it didn't sound like this dry thing, you know? And so I was like, I really want to have a, I want to have an opportunity to get to know this text better and have a different relationship with it. So my book of poems, 1919 is a collection of poems that is, attempts to tell the story or tell a version of the story of the 1919 race riot. And each poem in the book is in conversation with an archival passage excerpt from the report, The Negro in Chicago. So it's my attempt to tell a story about a part of history that I think is really important, um, but to do so in a kind of dialectic, you know, dialogue relationship with um, with more ghosts, with people who are not with us anymore, but that are that I still think of as kind of like our neighbors. But you're talking back to The Negro in Chicago, right? I a mean, little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so... So when you find a fragment like a large number of Negroes in the city is not in itself cause for alarm, kind of your head explodes and you're like, right. wow. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. Let's mean, unpack. Let's yeah, unpack. Let's unpack that. And I, and I think, that, as I say, reading the two books together the last couple of days, you know who came to my mind was, and I may mispronounce her name, someone else we know in common, and that's Sadea Hartman. Oh, Is yes. Sadea Hartman, Hartman amazing. Yeah, Sadea. Sadea She's Hartman. incredible. That's a big compliment to me. Well, you know, it's it's an amazing, um, what's amazing about her book, but also about your attempt here, and, and I think in both of your books, is that you take the... Um, the orthodox history, you take the given history and you explode it and you say, no, mm. there are people here. And yes. I may not know the people, but I can imagine the people and I can, my starting point can be, these people also had three-dimensional lives. That's and even right. though you write about them as pathological, 
I want to see them as people of agency, people of power. That's what I think is common in, in both of these books and, and in Hartman's work. Um, Oh, that makes me feel very seen, Bill. So thank you. I, that's what I'm trying to do. It's a great accomplishment because I think it's so easy and, and you can kind of tell who's being erased from history yes. Yes. By, by what accounts are written. So in Hartman's case, she goes to uh, the police accounts, the arrest accounts, the prison intake uh, things, the sociologist. Um, and and you do something similar. You, you, you say... Well, here's what's said about folks. Let me right. tell you what folks say about themselves. Right, right. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, there's so much important retelling that has to happen right now, because if we don't, um, we we can't go another generation transmitting these flat images of history. I mean, we just can't. It's just intellectually dishonest. And it's especially so at a time when we have, you know, humanity, human species is about 1.8 million years old, mm. almost 2 million years. I used to teach middle school science, so I have mm. to have facts like this off the top of my head. So about one, Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Human, humanity is about 1.8 million years. In that almost 2 million years, we have the unprecedented levels of access to information to, to you know, even what's amazing, Bill, about 1919 is I, I was able to access this 800-some page document for free online. And when I go give talks about it, I can tell people, go look it up. You can right. find the PDF. It's an all kinds of repositories. You could do exactly what I did with your students. You right. could have them go through this text and pick out the things that are interesting to them. So we have so much access to information that the and 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 also there are still so many people whose stories are are concealed and hidden from us. Um, we just have to do better at excavating these kinds of stories, and we can't. I just think it's it's unconscionable to go another generation just lying to people, and to ourselves, and to kids. I think you're right, but but how do you not drown in the amount of information? How do you sort your way through it? How do you fight your way through it? That's such a good question. I'm having that problem right now. So I'm working on my next book, uh, which is a big, ambitious book. Uh, the book is, is called the book is called original sins. Um, the subtitle is, I gotta remember this the subtitle is, uh, the miseducation of black and native children and the construction of American racism wow. and miseducation is in parentheses, uh, shouts to Lauren Hill. Um, yeah, yeah. and so the book is about how my, basically my argument is that, um, anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity are at the root of our nation's history, right? You know this, I know this. Yes. Um, and, and specifically that, Anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity are at the root of how we define what race even is in America, right? And and this is kind of a historical argument that'll be familiar to to people like you or you know people who maybe have read Ibram X. Kendi, um, his type of work, or um, you know that the book that you have now cast, right? I I will say that for many people, the anti-indigeneity part is less familiar to them because part of the settler colonial project of our country is that that history is intentionally erased. And so I'm really grateful, especially this past summer, that so many people are having conversations about the the root of anti-blackness of chattel slavery. And what I want to do with this book is also to, to, to have that argument alongside the understanding of settler colonialism 
But most importantly, the, the argument I also want to make is that schools are the laboratory mm-hmm. where this technology of racism is honed, perfected, practiced, normalized, and that it is in schools where we, where we regularly build systems that dehumanize children on a daily basis and that normalize that dehumanization, right? That, that make it seem like it's fine, like it's the natural order of things, right. and that specifically dehumanizes Black children and native children historically and into the present. So that's really, (laughs) I'm really overwhelmed because it's a huge project. And so, you know, to actually answer your question and not just try to pitch my book that will be out in 20 years, probably. Um, you know, I, if my publisher is listening, it will not be out in 20 years. It'll be out expediently. I'm writing it right now as right. we speak. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I think that part of what I try to do is use conversations with people to create a structure or a set of boxes around my thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, and also to be very, I'm a big believer in all, in all things. If it's art, if it's cooking, if it's holiday, any literally anything, I try to narrow what I want to do and then do it really, really well. Mm. Uh, and so with 1919, it's not a comprehensive history of the entire Red Summer. It's not a, you know, anybody else can write that. You can look that up. It's an attempt to say, you know, how do we have these conversations with, with the ghosts of our past? And so with this new book, Original Sins, I'm thinking, okay, well, what are you know, I can't write the entire history of racism, in America, you know, against black people and native people. But what I do want to think about is what are the tools I want to give people to look at the contemporary world differently? Mm-hmm. And so the book is going to be as right now, this could change, but I'm thinking about three pillars of racism that I think are really function that are honed in the past and used in the present. One is, uh, is discipline and punishment. So mm-hmm. the the normal, and this goes to prisons, this goes to policing, mm-hmm. all these things, right? The idea that some types of bodies need discipline and control. Um, one is economic subjugation. So limiting people's abilities to um, feed themselves, to find labor that brings them joy, to find labor that is dignified, right? Um, and the third pillar is intellectual inferiority. The idea that we, we normalize a belief that many, many people still have and that um, is so relevant relevant in our society, which is that there are just some children who are not intelligent, right. right? That we have very narrow ideas of intelligence and that there are some racial groups that are less intelligent than others. This is a eugenicist exactly. argument. Um, it's an old argument and it's, it's not as, um, obvious as it was when people were publishing books like the bell curve, but you know, neither you nor I would be surprised, but I think some people, some listeners might be surprised to really reflect and, and understand the ways in which the those arguments are still so prevalent in our schools, so prevalent in our society, right? One of my students who used to be a teacher in California shared with me recently a story where, you know, he was in one of these data meetings that teachers are called into and, uh, and everybody's looking at the data and there's huge racial disparities in the data. And somebody says, you know, well, what should we, what should we make of this? What can we learn from this data? And a teacher said, well, you know, we can see that we need to be giving out birth control, uh, in some of these neighborhoods. Right. And these are things, this isn't, 1950. This isn't 1920. These are things that people say and believe in the 21st century. Many people say them, many more people believe them and won't say them. Right. And, um, I think it, frankly, I think it comes up 
um, liberal people and people who consider themselves progressive say things all the time that I find shocking when they're talking about, you know, things like Trump voters or supporters. They'll say things like, you know, well, hopefully natural selection will get rid of mm-hmm. those people or, you know, some people shouldn't be allowed to mm-hmm. breed. Some people shouldn't be allowed to have children. And it's like just, you know, obviously I'm not trying to uh, provide justification for any of the racist beliefs of, of Trump or his supporters, but you know, the kind of casual and quick turn to eugenics always really shocks me. Um, so anyway, I'm basically, I try to think about containers like this, ways of approaching a big topic that where I'm saying, I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you these three things. And if you get these three things, mm-hmm. we can get really far. Yeah, <laughs> and you sure. will understand a lot of things differently. And then hopefully people will be on their own journey after that. For sure. So it's the control of the body and then economic control and then control of the mind. And that's right. as you say, I mean, nobody... Well, nobody except some really crazy people like Donald Trump stand up and say you're you're, you're good stock. It's the race racehorse analogy, but people do. Everybody, I mean, seemingly the mainstream certainly says standardized tests tell us everything. Um, exactly. You know, so that's the kind of thing that it's the normalization of a eugenics kind of way of seeing. I always find yes. it amazing that the SAT used to be the scholastic aptitude test then the scholastic achievement test now it's simply called the sat because it's not right it's like because it doesn't (laughs) doesn't measure anything and you know you and i and our students know um that the sat you know and the entire notions of intelligence testing was absolutely based on eugenicist ideas that there are some people who are born talented right disproportionately white wealthy people who are born with talents and that our primary job as educators is to help the the state by sorting people Mm -hmm. into, you know, to make sure that in a kind of brave new world, you know, style that we sort the wheat from the chaff. And that idea goes back to Thomas Jefferson. And it's, it's, it really is prevalent and goes unchallenged in so many arenas. I'll give you another example. Um, So I went to Northside College Prep High School. It's a selective enrollment high school, which means you have to take standardized tests to get in. The you know in in Boston they're called exam schools, in New York they're called specialized schools. We have all these schools that in name are public schools, but that we have these very strict criteria and very narrow criteria about how students are able to access them. And so you know when I became an alum after I graduated high school. Every year, these, uh, you know, local news would come out and say, congratulations, Northside College Prep is the number one high school in the state, number one high school in the city, whatever. And when I used to be on Facebook, now I'm not on Facebook anymore because it's the devil, but when I used to be on Facebook, all of my uh, people I went to high school with would share this article, students of color, people who grew up poor, right, people of all of all background, racial backgrounds, class backgrounds. And they'd be like, go us, go Mustangs, go school. And, and I got really unpopular, Bill, because I would say, you guys, th- this is selecting on the why, right? Like if you say, uh, I'm going to have a school where you have to get great test scores to get in, and then you put out a list that says, here's all the people with the best test scores, you don't get to pat yourself on the back because right. you're at the top of the list because you played the results. That's the criteria upon which you selected the people. It's like if I said, I'm going to make a track team and you can't be on my team unless you can run a six minute mile. Right. And then I'm like, go me. My team is the fastest. I'm <laughs> exactly. the best coach. Exactly. No, this is a, this is a very obvious selection bias, right? Boy, that did not make me popular among my fellow alums because even, again, even people of color, even people who grew up poor, the myth of meritocracy in our country is so 
pernicious. And so, and the hyper individualism of our country, it, it really hurts people to tell them, Hey, you're awesome. You're great. You're talented. You're wonderful. But can we talk about some of the ways in which this system was set up to, to tell you that your particular brand of special and great matters and this other person's brand of special and great didn't. Right. right? And that's a really uncomfortable conversation, but I think it's one of the ways in which this legacy of eugenics, the legacy of the, the idea of the bell curve, it just seeps into people people's minds and they just don't even think about it. They don't give it a second thought. You know, I wonder if the overlapping crises we're living through, I mean, we talked a bit about the reckoning around racial injustice, um, the, the crisis of the environment, of course, but the crisis of, uh, of the pandemic. I wonder if that is something that is going to reveal these contradictions in brighter light. I mean, I wonder if I, I get very unhappy when I hear people say, let's get back to normal. Normal is an apartheid school system based on eugenics. So I don't want yeah, to go normal back. sucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to go back. But I wonder, do you think that that it's a moment of not just reckoning, but awakening or potentially at least? You know, I, I'm writing down what you said. Normal is an apartheid school system based on eugenics, because I just think that's so great and accurate. Um, I think that it's, I think that there's a moment of potential. And I think that something you and I both do as writers and the writers that we admire, the writers we try to hang out with and learn from, um, I'm thinking, for example, of people like Kevin Kumashiro, who writes a lot about frames. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to do some hard framing right now. And so it's our job to jump in, you know, me, you, Mariam Kaba, right? Like all these people that are, are, our job is to jump in the ring, wave a big flag and say, alert, alert, let me tell you what this really means. Like, let me tell you what's really going on, right? And I think that there are some opportunities for really crucial reframing here. For example, um, the framing around the way we provide social services, supports, and a safety net in our country. Right now, we have a system that attaches those things largely to, for instance, employment, that attaches those things to private systems. And really quickly, we saw that there are vast, vast numbers of people that are not cared for or protected when we attach these things to to private goods, as opposed to understanding them as rights that all of us share and that all of us have access to. And when that started happening to lots of people, it's tragic. It's a tragic moment that also for some people, I think, politicized them towards a different vision for the first time to say like, well, wait a minute, this is an emergency. This isn't my fault. You know, I pay taxes. I am a productive member of society. Why is it that uh, I don't have basic services to provide for me in this emergency. Why is it that it's so contentious to offer me just the littlest amount of money to pay my bill, bills, right? And to even to just double, you know, circle back on what I just said, even paying taxes and being a productive member of society, those things shouldn't be the criteria upon which our worthiness to continue living is judged, right? In an affluent society. And so, I think that that is a moment of potential. There's a lot of potential around moment of schooling right now. I will say for myself as an educator, I have tried to take this as a, as a moment to really closely align my practices as much as I can with the things that I've always believed, but which I felt like I didn't have permission to live into all the time. And so, for example, thinking differently about something like grading, right? Thinking differently around something like late work, thinking differently around things like participation and what that can look like. 
I have really appreciated the opportunity to cut and change and adapt a lot of things um, in an effort to just be compassionate to my students mm. as well as, frankly, to myself. And I think that there are a lot of educators doing that right now. At the same time, there are educators who are doing things like suspending and expelling kids, even though they're not in the damn room. I, you, suspending kids, expelling kids, calling the police on kids for things they did in their house, and you saw them through a computer. Like the height of the surveillance state is is mind boggling. So that is terrifying to me. I think that there are always going to be people who are going to, as haphazardly as possible, keep applying the same rules right. and the same structures. Like honestly, Bill, God forbid. If there was just a total, you know, I don't know, if aliens dropped a space bomb on us tomorrow and we all had to move to caves and we were teaching, you know, university classes and K-12 in caves, there would be people in the caves trying to suspend the kids. There would be people in the caves trying to expel the kid and saying, you can't be in the cave right. anymore. You got to go be in that other cave for two days and right. then think about what you did and come back, right? Like that is how deep it goes for some people. There would be people in the caves saying like, well, what percent of, you know, what percentage am I going to do for participation? And like, like, come, we live in a cave. What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah. And that, that's how I feel about the pandemic at times. So, but we have to fight that and we have to always push for imagination, new thinking, new boundaries around what we can do and can't do. And that's really the job of poets. It's a job of activists. I mean, it's that reframing. And, and I think that, I think you're right that these things run deep, but I think we're at a moment where for example, insisting that healthcare is a human right, even 10 years ago, seemed absolutely bizarre. But That's now right. It's, it's part of the mainstream conversation. Reparations, that was something we've talked about it for, in my life, for 60 years. And yet, suddenly it's being talked about in the New York Times. I mean, right. it kind of blows my mind. So I think there's Abolition, the, police abolition. Abolition, exactly. And I think the opportunity to dive in. And, and I, the other thing that you're the other advice you're giving me that I take very seriously is use this as a moment to align your practices with your deepest values and see that as something that that uh, it, it requires work every day. It requires opening your eyes and diving into the into the whirlwind and 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 making so, making it happen. I'm but I trying. think that's really really good advice. I am too, and you're helping me. Um, I want to pivot um, sure. because we, we've been talking a long time and you've been teaching all day and I got to let you go have dinner. I um, would love but, some dinner. I, the only thing that would be making it better is if we could all have dinner together, but that'll be another I time. I couldn't agree more. We'll do it soon up in our, uh, up in our area overlooking uh, the city. <laughs> um, but, but two quick things. I, I want listeners to know that you're not only an extraordinary poet. We mentioned the book 1919. The other book that people should read is Electric Arches, your first book of poetry. And I'm looking forward to your forthcoming book in 2050 or whatever. 2020 question mark. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although Um, I will say, Bill, I have a book coming out next summer. It's my first book for little, little peeps. I have a a children's book coming out in July, July, 2021. So that one is for sure coming out. What's it called? It's called Maya and the Robot. And it's about a girl whose best friend is a robot. And it's also about um, loss and it's about gun violence. And it's about the way we learn to see the value we give to our communities. And it's my favorite thing I've ever written. And it's for uh, grades kind of like second through fourth grade or anybody who just feels like they're still in second or fourth grade. Well, I, I want to say I'd, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised because the other thing people should know about Eve Ewing is she's written an extraordinary play with Nate Marshall 
called uh, no 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 blue futures. Is no that what it's no called? blue memories. Although I like the title. No, no blue, blue memories. That's right. Like futures. No blue memories. And it, it was put on in downtown Chicago by a puppet a group of puppeters. And, and what is their name? I forget. The yes. Name of the so so company. Manual Cinema is the name of the, the company, right. and they're an amazing theater company that they do basically live action shadow puppetry. So it's like a movie and a puppet show all at once with a I live saw band. It twice. Yeah, I saw it twice. It blew my mind. Uh, original music, but Nate and Eve Ewing wrote, wrote it, and it's extraordinary. And then the other thing people should know about you is that you're a Marvel Comics author. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like your children's book, I, it, it's not the same as your Marvel comic, but what's similar is it sounds like it's a nerdy scientific girl. It is. Who <laughs> has a big brain, like somebody I know. I think I'm looking at her. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I say just one word about Marvel and how that happened, that you are one of the very few African-American women artists for the Marvel Universe. Yeah, I think, you know, so what I love about writing comic books is that... Um, what I love about it is comics are uh, an art form invented in this country. So, and I think that much like other American art forms like jazz or blues or hip hop, um, comics are a little bit like lowbrow. <laughs> They're a little exactly. bit tacky. They're a little bit, and you know why, Bill? It's because they are uh, a relic of youth culture. And so anything that young people love, right? Polite society says isn't good. Graffiti, all of these things. And I think that all of the things I just listed, graffiti, hip hop, and so on and so forth, have started to, at different points in their history, become accepted as quote unquote real art by the American mainstream. And and yet they always retain um, an aspect of the undesirable or the low culture. And so that's kind of what I love about comics is that they're a space where I get to be a little bit tacky and uh, and I, where I kind of lean into uh, just fun and explosions and fights, but where I'm also trying to use them as a space to explore um, topics that I think are really about what courage means, what it means to be a hero in our society, you know, for me, like, what does it mean to write comic books when you're somebody that doesn't believe in prisons or police or, or crime, right? When you believe that, as I do, that crime is something that is socially constituted by the powerful as a way of defining who is and is not worthy of inclusion in our society, and that the definition of who is a criminal is always conveniently constructed to serve, you know, domination. Uh, so what do you do with that when the legacy is like, here you go, officer, I, I caught the bad guy for you. Right. So it's very, uh, it's both like a, a very simple and fun and exciting thing for me and also a space to explore the same ideas that I'm always exploring. But, you know, right. the difference is that there are, when I, when I put out a new comic book, there's usually, I would say like, uh, I'm working on a series right now called Champions and the first issue of Champions, uh, first, I think I, my editor told me 40,000 people had pre-ordered it. Um, wow. and then later on we did a reprint and it's up to like 60, 70,000. And so, wow. you know, for any other book and for comics, you know, what I got for that is like, oh, good job. <laughs> You know, if we, if you or I published a book that sold 40,000 copies, are you kidding me? You know, in, in a week for a thing that costs, we, you know, exactly. we would be like lauded as here. They would be putting laurels on us walking down the street. But, um, so it's also just, it's mass media, it's popular culture exactly. and mass media. And I, I think it's really interesting and challenging to think about how can I bring some of these ideas, uh, about things like, you know, mental health, about things like 
thinking about the police differently, about things like thinking about crime differently to, you know, America's, America's youth (laughs) through, through popular culture. Right. Well, it's, it's called Ironheart, right? Yes, that's um, the first one I'm best known for, and that's out as a book right now. So that um, teachers and librarians, you can order that anywhere you get. And the subtitle is meant to fly. So if you look up Ironheart on the internet, you'll see all different like issue one, issue two, issue three. But if you look up Ironheart meant to fly, that is the a book. It has a yellow cover and it collects the whole story. So that's the best one for librarians and teachers, educators. A black girl on the South Side who becomes a superhero. That's right. Super, super brainy, super nerdy. That's right. Um, <laughs> I wonder if we we have to talk again because we have barely scratched the surface and there's so much going on in the world. But I wondered if you would be willing to read one poem. Absolutely. Uh, tr- I, I I was hoping you would read from Electric Arches. Sure. Affirmation. I have to go get it from. Oh, that I can just pull up on the internet because it's online. It, Okay, it's called Affirmation. Yes. Folks who are listening to this can get it online, but I would love to hear you read it if you would. Sure. So I'm going to just share a little bit of backstory about this poem um, because it's very special to me. Um, And so this is a poem that I wrote for young people who are incarcerated um, as part of a a relationship with um, the organization Liberation Library, which is a great organization that people should support. They um, provide books to young people that are, that are incarcerated in our, in Illinois. Um, and the thing is, I, I thought about in writing this poem, I wanted to provide something that could be a comfort to somebody in times of trouble. And I thought a lot about great poems by people like Maya Angelou, um, poems that are very memorizable so that when you have a poem memorized, mm-hmm. it means that you don't need a book. You don't need a notebook. You don't need a piece of paper. You don't need the internet. These are all things that, you know, um, that you and I have both experienced and witnessed um, people who are incarcerated being denied access to these things, often capriciously without reason or warning. And so, you know, I just, um, that's very painful when books are banned in prisons, for example, or, you know, people don't have access to the internet. So I thought, how can I give people something that they can always have? And the way Mm -hmm. you always have something is to keep it in your brain forever. Mm So I tried to write a poem that's very easy to memorize, and that is uh, that's that's kind of the backstory of this poem. Um, so I'll read it for you now, and I'm so grateful I get to share it with you. Thank you. Affirmation to youth living in prison after Asada Shakur. Speak this to yourself until you know it is true. I believe that I woke up today, and my lungs were working miraculously. My voice can sing and murmur and ask miraculously. My hands may shake, but they can hold me or another. My blood still carries the gifts of the air from my heart to my brain miraculously. Put a finger to my wrist or my temple and feel it. I am magic. Life and all its good and bad and ugly things, scary things which I would like to forget, beautiful things which I would like to remember. The whole messy, lovely, true story of myself pulses within me. I believe that the sun shines. If not here, then somewhere. Somewhere it rains and things will grow green and wonderful. Somewhere inside me, too, it rains and things will grow green and wonderful. 
Sometimes my insides rain from the inside out, and then I know I am alive, I am alive, I am alive. Oh, Eve, I'm weeping all over again. I am alive. That thank is, you. That is the message. Eve Ewing, I can't thank you enough for joining me, and I want you to keep being you, keep doing all you do, and keep rising. Oh, thanks, Bill. I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> That's it. That's what you got to do. There's no one else to be. Eve, I really appreciate you, and I love you, and let's be in touch. I love you and appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's check in again with Light Ai Lee, our dynamic 13-year-old reporter, and our regular segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook. Hi, Lighty. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm really well, and it's great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for reading that poem uh, at the beginning. That was really, really well done. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, so last time we talked, we had, um, we were, you were giving us some of your book recommendations, and I wondered, we kind of got cut in the middle, and I wondered if you had some others you wanted to share with us. Um, yeah, I, I do, and they're for different age groups, but um, I, have, I have some specific, or not specific, I mean, some people are on different levels, but yeah, I, I do have more. Okay, let me have some. Um, okay, for ages maybe 13 to 15, I would definitely recommend The Hate You Give. Mm. Um, that's a really amazing book. It is, it's really powerful and it, it demonstrates racial injustice and police brutality in a really, really amazing way. Can you tell us the story? Just not, don't, don't uh, step on the ending, but tell us where it begins. What's Um, the story? So there's a, the main character is a, is a, um, I think she's 17 year old girl named Star. Um, and she, one day she's in a, she, she left a party where a gun went off with her friend who she's known since childhood. Mm. And then they get pulled over for no reason. And her friend gets shot and killed by the cop. Wow. So very contemporary, very, very, uh, in the news, right? Yeah. It's, it's an amazing book and they made it into a movie too. So you can also watch that. Okay. What else? Um, for, for maybe, uh, 11 to 13, uh, there's, um, Amina's Voice by Haina Khan. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's really, it's really cute at times and, um, it's really sweet, I guess is a good way to put it. It's very touching and at times powerful, like The Hate You Give, but, um, it's more for kids. It's about this girl named Amina who she's always been like very shy and she's like, a, she's a really good singer and she wants to have a solo at this concert they're doing, but she can't bring herself to audition for it. Mm. Um, and for, I don't know, I, I guess uh, 15 to 16 or 14 to 16. Um, but wait a minute, you're, wait a minute, you're 13. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem. Um, I don't know, like, different readers' backgrounds. I don't know what level they're on, so I'm just trying to make it um, realistic. But these books are really for all 
young adults and teenagers. Okay, so go forward with this one. Another one of my favorites is called Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me by Mariko Tamaki. Um, it's amazing. The art is really, really beautiful. There's like a very beachy like color scheme with um, like coral pink and like black and white. It's beautiful. It looks a little bit like um, ve- like Vegas and like or like Miami or wait, uh, Palm Beach and like movies. Like the mm-hmm. color scheme is very like washed out and pastel and like vintage looking. It's really beautiful. It's about this um, this high school girl uh, named Freddie. She she heard it. That's her nickname for Frederica, and she um, is writing. the The book is set. She's writing to this advice column because she doesn't. She's having relationship troubles and she doesn't really know how to fix them. So it's beautiful though, and her friend is a big part of it because she can't really be a good friend when she's with this girl. Okay. So it's it's kind of like that. And the art is really what I love most about it, but the plot is also amazing. Okay, so do you have one more? I yeah. Yeah, I do have one more. Okay. Um and this is very like everyone knows about this. It's not exactly original, but um I definitely recommend the Harry Potter series. Of course. It's really amazing and it's the characters I, I've always wanted to know how the author kept track of these characters because within the series there are there's got to be thousands of them mm-hmm. and they're all very intricately designed uh-huh. so I'm not exactly sure how she really like kept kept track of them and their personalities because there right. are so many of them and they're they're all like amazing like they're all very well made so. I so definitely you, recommend that. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because I think you started reading the Harry Potter series when you were quite young. Mm-hmm. How old? Yeah. Um, I read the first book when I was maybe summer of third grade. Okay. So, you know, these attempts to kind of put an age level on the, on the books, as you pointed out, is kind of a sketchy business because it kind of depends on where your reading level is at and how you, what you yeah. like to read and what you're drawn to. So you were like uh, maybe eight or nine when you started reading Harry Potter and Harry Potter is still interesting to adults. So, yeah. Are there books, are there books that your mom doesn't want you to read? Um... Because you're 13, and I would think that there are things that your parents might say, this is this is really inappropriate for you, but I'm not no, sure. No, my parents have never said that to me. Okay, okay. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like you to think about, we can talk about it another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting into the holiday season. I'd be interested in hearing from you uh, both what your family traditions have been and what your uh, what your What's going to be different this year? I guess that's the way to say it. What's going to be different this year in your holiday plans? We can't talk about it today because we don't have time, but but let's talk about that next time. What are you looking forward to? What are you going to miss from your typical family tradition? Okay? Okay. Okay, Lady, thanks for being with me. Thank you for having me. Before we say goodbye... I have a homework assignment. In our conversation just now, 
Eve Ewing noted that during the crisis, she's working intentionally and purposefully to align her practices more clearly with her values. Maybe that's the perfect jumping off point for each of us to reflect and rethink. So the homework is this. How are you living your life right here, right now, in a way that doesn't make a mockery of your values? Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors, and to Malika Lean, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.